Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So I'm here with Dan Butner, and you might not have heard his name, but I'm going to tell you right now, this guy just ruined my life. <laughs> And and Dan, welcome to the show. I'm going to describe who you are in a second, but welcome to the show. Well, good to be here, and I'm 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 interested to hear how I've already ruined your life. Yeah. So Dan, you have a book coming out. Uh, depending on when this podcast comes out, I think your book's coming out today, and it's um, the, I know it's called the Blue Zones. What's the full title? Oh, it's the Blue Zone Solution: Eating and Living Like the World's Healthiest People. And describe what a blue zone is, because I think this is fascinating. It's part of a 10-year project by National Geographic that sought to identify pockets around the world, demographically confirmed, geographically defined, where people live the longest. And Not just live the longest, but I, I get from all your talks and everything, it's people who live to be past the age of 100. Well, there's actually three measurements. Uh, one is uh, percentage of centenarians. The second one is life expectancy. And the third is something called lowest rate of middle age mortality. In other words, they hit uh, about an age 90 at the highest rate of chronic disease. Okay. So, so it's not like when you mention to people, like when the, when I mentioned to people, Oh, would you like to live to be a hundred? A lot of people say no, because I don't want to have dementia or I don't want to be sick, but you're specifically identifying areas where people live to a very high age without having necessarily disability. That's right. They stay sharp to the very end. They tend to die quickly in their sleep and occasionally after sex. <laughs> So I'm going to ask you about that in a second, but one of my favorite stories from one of your talks was you talk about a 97-year-old guy. I think he was living in either California – I think he was living in California, in the in the blue zone in California that you mentioned. And a contractor – he wanted to build a fence and a contractor charged him – was going to charge him $6,000. And he said, heck, I could do it myself. So he spent four days – you know getting the cement, digging the holes, building the fence. And then you mentioned on the fourth day, he ended up in the ER. And, and then you mentioned he was he was the doctor performing open open heart surgery. Yeah, he wasn't the, the patient. He was the, he was the one doing open heart surgery. His name is Ellsworth Wareham, and he lives in Loma Linda, California. And he really exemplifies uh, the, the lifestyle of one of our blue zones uh, the, among the Adventists. He just he's done everything right his whole life, and uh, when I we shot those pictures, he's about ninety five. I was there a week ago Sunday in in uh, uh, Loma Linda, where he is now a hundred years old. Uh, he's still out back doing yard work. He drove me around with NBC, 
we're, we did a piece uh, beyond this week for the Today Show of um, Ellsworth uh, uh, driving me through uh, Loma Linda, pontificating about the secrets of reaching age 100. And he's actually someone who can speak with credibility. So, so uh, two questions on that. One is, uh, would you let yourself be operated on by someone who's 100 years old? Now, now, now uh, and, and to qualify, you mentioned um, kind of a sort of cultural attitudes towards people who are older. And often in the U.S., we tend to, you know, your social equity, as you put it, tends to go down as we age. But in these communities of blue zones, social equity tends to go up. Like we appreciate their wisdom and their knowledge. So clearly people don't mind their being operated on by 100. But I wonder about your personal opinion on that. Yeah, so the reality of there are two surgeons in the room, and he's the number two surgeon. And most of heart surgery is pretty routine. Uh, and 96% of the time, it goes exactly as planned. 4% of the time, something goes awry. And when you have a guy like Ellsworth, who's been operating for 60 years, and he's been through 12,000 op- uh, operations, when the, if you're among that 4% where something odd happens, here you've got a guy in the room who's seen it and knows how to handle it. And that's actually how the first surgeon uh, described the huge benefit of having someone Ellsworth around. They are repositories of wisdom and human experience. And that is an asset that is frequently diminished in our society and really celebrated in blue zones around the world. So, so that, that's a really great point because it shows that you were not only researching him, but you talked to the, the first doctor who he worked with. I imagine maybe you talked to some of the patients. I don't know. Um, but the other, the other thing that this brings up is now that he's turned 100, I love the fact that now he's an expert on how to live to 100 and is happy to pontificate about it. That's kind of the, the whole ethos of blue zones. That if you want to live to 100, what you, you should learn the lessons from people who have actually reached that age. And we like to think that our team has, has done a deeper dive and, and uh, gained a better understanding of what the whole ecosystem around people who make it to 100 is and, and be able to convey that to, to Americans. So, so the reason I mentioned uh, only half humorously that, that you ruined my life is that you mentioned all of these things in one of your talks on how to, be, how to live to be over 100. And um, I basically do like the opposite of all of them. <laughs> so I try. I, I think I was worse 10 years ago. I've gotten a lot better in the past, let's say, five years. But – uh, you know, you, you give nine basic principles and they're not that easy to do. Like if, if you're used to eating meat all your life, it's hard to switch to like a plant-based diet. Uh, I don't know if you want to describe some of the most important principles. Well, well, first off, what, where are the blue zones? Where are the blue zones that you think are the most interesting to study? Uh, I not only think it, I know it. Okay. The areas where people are living the longest are as follows. The longest women on the planet live in Okinawa. The longest lived men on the planet live in the highlands of Sardinia in the Noro province. Uh, the the uh, third blue zone is off the coast of Turkey on the Greek island of Ikaria. Uh, there they live about eight years longer than Americans do, but they have almost no dementia. Uh, the Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica 
Uh, people there have about a two and a half fold better chance of reaching a healthy age 90 than we do in first world America. And then uh, in the United States, the longevity all-stars live around Loma Linda, California, because that's the highest concentration of Seventh-day Adventists in the world. So, so this, this all brings to a couple of questions, and they're kind of all over the place. But all of the places you mentioned um, seem to be nice climates. Like, I'm never going to deal with negative 10-degree temperatures, and I'm probably not going to deal with 120-degree temperatures. Well, there is something to that. I, you, and we think it's because that uh, regular sunshine um, affords and vitamin D, but also that it's easier to be outside. Uh, it's easier to have gardens all around. But, um, you know, 30 years ago, the highest life expectancy in the world was in Denmark. So I don't think you have to live in a warm, sunny place to live a long time. It may just make it a little easier. Right. Maybe that's the point that it's easier to like take a walk around the block if uh, if you're living in a climate where you don't have to wear 65 layers of winter coats or whatever. Well, I you're calling me from New York, right? Uh, right now I'm in Florida specifically because I, I do live in New York, but I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I spend a lot of time in Florida just because in the winter it's hard to move around. Well, I, I will tell you that um, New York is actually a bit of a blue zone. Now, really, New York, there's about a, a third the rate of obesity than there is in middle America. And you started saying to yourself, well, what is it about New York? Is it better gyms? Well, probably not. Better diets? Eh. But people walk there just about yes. every trip to work or to go out to eat or go to a friend's house, occasions a walk. And it's that kind of mindless or natural physical activity that adds up. And none of these um, uh, blue zones, do you see these centenarians uh, going out and exercising or they, they never pump iron or run marathons or do triathlons or, you know, live a rich role life. Uh, there are people who, whose day is just landmine with nudges to, to keep them moving. And I think that's the bigger idea than, than uh, having to worry about changing your habits. You know, it, it's really fascinating because in 2002, I moved from New York City to about a town about 70 miles north, and there wasn't as much. I, I would walk every day in New York City. I would walk everywhere, but there wasn't really walking opportunities. It was a little more rural and where I moved. And I literally gained – I had been the same weight for, forever since I was a kid. And I literally gained 30 pounds in a two-month period once I moved. And it took a while to reduce the weight. I had to basically go back to New York City and start walking around a lot more. So you have a really good point there. I'll tell you something shocking, James. The average American burns fewer than 100 calories a day engaged in quote-unquote exercise. So as a public health initiative – it is a catastrophic failure. And we've been spending 60 years trying to tell people to go out and exercise. But it just it hasn't worked. We, we increasingly get more obese as a nation because it's hard to remember. And it requires discipline. And it, it's unpleasant. A much better strategy takes a page right from these blue zones around the world and thinks about creating environments where people are nudged into moving mindlessly, like New York like Boulder, Colorado, San Luis Obispo. 
well, Provo, Utah, Minneapolis. I love how you, in one of your talks, and, and I, I do have a second question about the areas you mentioned, but I want to just skip one second to, well, I think it was Okinawa, you mentioned they have, they actually serve their food on smaller plates, and so that helps them prevent the obesity problem. See, that's a, it's another, now once again, it's that's an environmental nudge. It's not something you have to remember every day. Um, we first observed it in Okinawa, and since then, our one of our partners, Brian Wansing from Cornell Food Lab, found that indeed, if you're eating off a 10-inch plate, you're probably consuming 20% or so fewer calories than you would if you're eating off a 13 or 14-inch plates uh, that, you, you, you know, many houses are stocked with. So, so oh, go ahead. No, it's just that um, that's something you can go out right now and say, I'm getting rid of all my huge plates, and I'm going to buy smaller plates. And you've just set yourself up for lowering your caloric intake for as many years or decades as you have those plates. That's the kind of the blue zones way, as opposed to remember to eat less, which you won't do. Right, because as you mentioned, it takes 30 minutes for, for the stomach to communicate to the brain that it's full. So by the time your brain thinks it's full, you've already eaten another like 20 or 30% in calories. Right. And that's, and that's why we, uh, we encourage people to uh, do whatever you can do to eat more slowly. You tend to eat more slowly if you're eating with your family as opposed to you know eating with one hand on the steering wheel uh, or taking electronics out of your kitchen or you know what, what we observed in all blue zones – and I'm not a particularly religious person, but they do express some gratitude before the meal. They put some punctuation between the the monkey brain, hurry, rush, got to do all this stuff in my day, and their meal. And uh, they, when you do that, people tend to slow down, and there's more time for that brain belly to brain connection to uh, to, to be made. Well, so so the other thing I want to mention about the the specific blue zones. You mentioned Greece, which uh, they, of course, eat what's called a Mediterranean diet. And that seems to be linked in studies to a decrease in dementia and Alzheimer's. Do you think that's true? Yes. I know I know a plant-based diet as a whole um, correlates very strongly with uh, lower rates of dementia. But our blue zone there, Ikaria, uh, has a, its own special variant of the Mediterranean diet. First, firstly, they adhere to it more so than any other place in the world. But secondly, there's a few components. Number one, they eat more potatoes, not French fries, but sort of boiled potatoes. Number two, more greens, uh, about 70 or 80 different types of greens. And a lot of them look like something you'd whack on the side of the freeway. Uh, but um, they're full of powerful antioxidants and anti-inflammatories and they're like, they're like what fennel for example uh, a, a um, dandelion a type of dandelion actually a, a type of arugula uh, they they generally fall under the rubric of horta and uh, they're also baked in pies so you know instead of putting cherries or you know lemon meringue they make these delicious pies. So you get a little bit of the naughty, you know, the, the sort of bread, but, but a lot of the good. And, and uh, they taste delicious. And at the end of the day, 
I can tell you all day long that greens are good for you and make you make you live a long time. But if you don't like them, you're not going to eat them. So if I could show you a way to eat them where it actually tastes good, now there you have something that can work and can work for a long time. So, so it's not so much that they're down on sugar if they're baking them into the pies, or what's the story there? There's no sugar at all. It's a savory pie. Mm. So they'll boil them, and then they'll uh, lightly saute them with some olive oil and perhaps some garlic and some other uh, spices, and then that becomes a filling. And then they actually the pie only has the crust on the bottom, so it's kind of an open-faced pie, mm. but that. The combination is really delightful. It's, there's something, I think, that uh, ameliorates the bitterness when you have them baked in a pie like a savory pie. So, so w- when I was preparing for this, I called somebody I know from Okinawa, and he said one of the things they do is is – because I was asking about carbs – uh, and whether carbs are involved at all. And he said they do eat carbs, but it's in a form they call, uh, I guess, resistant starch. So like, for instance, pasta, they'll make the pasta, but then they'll cool it so that it becomes more like fiber and just go through the system instead of uh, converting to sugar in the system. Have you noticed anything like that? Well, Okinawa, it's uh, soba noodles usually, which is buckwheat, which has a lower glycemic index than the white noodles that we normally cook with. Um, the starch actually for about 70 percent of the dietary intake of Okinawans to nineteen fifty were attributed to one starchy food, and that was sweet potatoes. Hmm. And uh, again, if you want to know what a centenarian ate to live to be a hundred, you can't just ask them what they're eating today. You need to know what they were eating in the twenties and the forties and the sixties and the eighties. And um, so our research. Uh, went out and grabbed the dietary surveys done over the past hundred years in all five blue zones. And we did a meta-analysis and, and our, I think our average really offers some pretty powerful lessons for Americans. And so what, what's the story of starch and carbs? About 65% of the blue zone diet is, uh, is carbs. Uh, really? Uh, yes. But they're, but remember James, uh, lollipops and lentil beans, they're, they're both carbs, right? So it's, it's the type of carbs. And you've heard this before. They're complex carbs. So they're real 100% whole grains. Um, they are um, uh, beans. The cornerstone of every longevity diet in the world is, is some sort of bean. They eat about a cup of beans a day. Um, and they actually eat bread. And one interesting find you'll see – in Blue Zone Solution, is uh, sourdough bread. So we, I think we kind of uniformly write off bread as a net negative. It's going to make me fat. It's empty carbs. But sourdough bread, which is leavened with lactobacillus, actual bacteria, as opposed to the fungus yeast that commercial breads are made with, actually lowers glycemic index. In other words, a piece of real sourdough bread like we see in Icaria and Sardinia, will actually reduce the insulin reaction to the meal. So you put it simply, your meal burns more slowly and more it's much easier on your system, your pancreas and so forth, and much less likely that that meal will be used for energy instead of uh, converted to fat on your midsection. So these subtleties are hugely important, especially over time. 
Yeah, you know, that's the thing. It's like it requires work to make a shift. So like United States culture is not really, you know, as they always say in the supermarket, you know, don't shop in the middle aisles, only shop on the side aisles. And we're not really the whole way we we shop for food uh, is different from what these blue zone diets are like. Yeah, and it's it's hard. Every time you go out to eat, on average, you're burning about 200 more calories than you would be if you ate at home. And uh, if you're if you if you're in the highest quartile of meat consumption of Americans, you're about 400 percent more likely to get cancer than if you're eating a plant-based diet, the lowest quartile. And you say to yourself, "Well, how do I remember this? How 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 am I supposed to cook?" Well, I'll tell you the secret. The secret is to think about who your three best friends are. If your three three best friends are sitting home and eating Doritos on the couch, <laughs> or they are, you know, every meal is some slab of dead cow they 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 cook on the grill. Guess what you're going to eat when you go see them? So cultivating friends who you know have dinner parties and they eat plant based because when you're hanging out with them, you're naturally going to eat better. And you don't have to remember it. And it's pleasant because presumably they're your friends and, and meal is just part of a bigger picture of a, of a pleasant evening. So, yeah, that's, that, that's, it's sort of like that expression. Um, you know, you're the average of the five people you spend your, most of your time with. I haven't seen that, but that's brilliant. So, so I have a question. Um, you mentioned, in one of your talks uh, that, you know, evolution doesn't necessarily reward people who live to 100. Evolution rewards procreative success. So they want, uh, you know, evolution itself or your DNA wants you to live long enough to reproduce and wants you to live long enough to be a grandfather or grandmother. Um, And I was just curious, why grandfather or grandmother? I kind of get the reproduction part, uh, but why the grandfather part? Yeah, this is true in, er- in every male, every mammal, I'm sorry, that uh, every mammal lives about two and a half times the age of uh, procreation when you can first start procreating. And that's because that's the way evolution works. You, um, you need to live long enough to, to have a baby. I mean, to keep your species going, right? To have a baby. And as a parent, you have to be around to make sure that parent gets to. Uh, adulthood to the age of procreation. And once they procreate, therefore you become a grandparent, you're actually not that important in the evolutionary scheme of things because now your your kid is the, the parent of that next generation and you become marginalized. Now, I will add that in our blue zones, we see a grandmother effect uh, and these cultures tend to keep aging grandparents near the family. And these aging grandparents, they've been through the the uh, economic downturns, the famines, the epidemics. Uh, they've learned resiliency. Uh, they have sometimes a century of wisdom that they can contribute to the family, both the, their children and their children's children, to better their survival. Uh, so... This grandmother effect is also something we see in all mammalian species that keeping grandparents nearby even favors the the uh, uh, 
survival of those next two generations and in turn also favors the survival of the grandparents. So there's kind of this virtuous circle. Uh, but Yeah. So, so, so after like the age of 60, 65, it's kind of like we're, we're, we're off on our own. Like our DNA could care less about us at that point. Like, I like I like to describe DNA like cassette tapes. Remember cassette tapes back in the old days? Yeah, yeah, of course. Cassette tapes. So, you know, we would make a uh, copy of the Eagles' greatest hits or the Beatles or whatever people were listening to back then and uh, put on a cassette tape. And then we would make a copy of that cassette tape for our friends. And our friends might make a copy of theirs to somebody else. And with each copy, there's a buildup of, of – uh, of damage, of there's a breakdown in fidelity. And by the time the sixth or seventh cassette is copied down the line, that that tape sounds so horrible you can barely listen to it. Kind of the same thing happens to our cells. Our cells turn over about almost every cell in your body, about 100 trillion cells, turn themselves over about once every seven years. And when they do that, there's some damage. And that damage doubles every time those cells replicate every seven years. So a hundred, so a 65 year old, they're not only older, but the rate at which they're getting older is about 150 times faster than a 12 year old. So and okay, that number just keeps I, I, I want to understand that number. So a 65 year old person ages 150 times faster than let's say a 12 year old. What, what does that mean? Does that mean the amount of damage that's happening to their cells is... 150 times greater than when my cells turned over at the age of 12? Yes. So the technical definition of aging is a buildup of cellular and molecular damage over time. Technical definition. So you don't start aging until you're 12. So you have no, technically no damage, theoretically no damage. Then seven years go by and you're now 19. Now you have a doubling of, of the damage because your cells don't reproduce like digitally. They reproduce like analog. They're, they're in, the, the, the reproduction's imperfect. So add seven more years when you're 26, and now there's four times as much damage. When you're 33, there's uh, eight times. When you're 40, there's uh, 16 times. And the doubling keeps going until at a, at a certain point, the cell no longer uh, is able to duplicate. That's called... So census, and that uh, basically means the cells don't rejuvenate themselves. They're they're full of built up damage, which manifests itself in wrinkled skin and and uh, hardened arteries and l- lower brain function and more susceptibility to cancer. And we are in a certain way at this understanding the human body right now. On average, we're kind of programmed to be dead at about 90 or 92. There's some outliers that make it to 100, but they're really genetic freaks, quite well, honestly. Well, why is the average lifespan then in the 70s? Is that because we just have uh, – in addition to the normal damage, we increase it by unhealthy eating habits, unhealthy living habits, and so on? Yeah, so if you – so – our eating habits and, and uh, inactivity and exposure to pollutants, that they foreshorten our lives. And, and like I said, the average maximum life expectancy of 
a population living in the first world is about 90 right now. So if you got rid of heart disease, which is almost all avoidable, uh, most cancers avoidable, uh, diabetes, type 2, avoidable completely, uh, and most dementia also avoids, we'd only hit 90. But right now in America, we're only hitting 78. So our crappy lifestyle, our eating fast food and and uh, snacks and salty snacks and candy bars and sodas and in fact we've engineered most activity out of our lives physical activity out of our lives is costing us about a dozen years of of life and those years um could potentially be good years but we're losing them because of our i argue it's mostly our environment i don't think anybody is fat in this country uh at their own fault i think it's because of where we live and and that's a combination of just in, in general, the, our, our plate size, our lack of activity, the way shopping malls are set up and, and so on, the, the friends we hang out with. Yeah, so we, we burn about one-fifth the calories and physical activities as our grandparents did. Uh, you can't walk through uh, an airport or go fill up your car with gas or go to a, get cough medicine without having to walk past a gauntlet of salty snacks and candy bars and soda pops, or you can't go to most people in America can't make any trips without having to get in their car uh, every day, about 350 marketing images for packaged food rinses over our psyche, encouraging us to buy food. That's not all that good for us. We're just, our, our genes are screaming for us to eat fat, sugar, and salt. And our environment is making that way too easy. Whereas historically, we lived in environments of scarcity and hardship, and that kept our genes from letting us uh, letting us make wrong decisions throughout the day. And now we live in a place where the answer is always yes. <laughs> well, what what's the effect? What's the percentage effect? Would you say on just general pollutants in the air? And I'm not, I'm not saying we live in a polluted society, but there's certainly more pollutants in the air than there were, let's say, 200 years ago. It's it's the it's the fifth biggest killer in uh, in, in um, America. So, but it's behind heart disease and and um, uh, obesity, metabolic syndrome. Um, so, uh, just guessing, it probably shaves two to three years off life expectancy. If you live someplace, if you live in L.A., for example, it's probably more like five years. Hmm. Um, because you have exposed to more. Uh, I like I like you mentioned in one of the talks uh, an Okinawa expression that refers to uh, what is the purpose of the day. Yeah, the the the, the uh, term is ikigai, I K I G A I, and it roughly means the reason for which you wake up in the morning, and that kind of means purpose. And we know that people who have a strong sense of purpose live uh, six or seven years longer than people who don't. Uh, and that if you can articulate your life meaning, it, uh, it probably cuts in half your mortality, uh, your your chances of dying in any given year. And, and you said you, they don't even have a word for retirement. It's just it's just every morning. What what is the purpose? What is the purpose I'm waking up? Basically, yeah, they don't they don't they don't necessarily say it every day. 
So there's no word for retirement, but instead an ikigai is their, how what views their adult life. So, you know, I, I actually think retirement's a bad idea. Retirement in this country was more or less invented by the Social Security Administration based on actuary tables. So the Social Security system doesn't go bankrupt. But what it's done is it sent a message to a whole generation of people at a certain age, you're no longer useful. Now go down to Florida or Arizona and go golf. Uh, whereas in blue zones, where age is celebrated and older people feel a sense of responsibility and they're imbued with this purpose, they don't, they're not busting their ass every single day in their 80s, 90s, and 100s, but they stay engaged. They, they do that work that feeds their soul and they feel useful because of it. And, and it keeps their brains sharp and their bodies moving and keeps them taking their medicines and it keeps them connecting with younger generations and new ideas. And, and here we do the opposite. We, we, we warehouse our old. Well, well, you know, this this brings up an interesting question because the word the word purpose has many meanings, and you know, some people they might not ask the question why why am I waking up today, but they might ask the question, um, uh, how soon will I be partner in my law firm? And the answer might be fifteen years away. So, so when does purpose become a negative. Like I view that as a negative when you're aiming for a goal that's like, uh, you know, five, 10, 15 years away or, or, or you need like X amount of dollars to be happy or, you know, some kind of esoteric goal like that, as opposed to having a goal for, or, or a purpose for right now today. Do you find any difference there? Right. So that's a good question. So purpose, uh, the real definition of purpose is the intersection of your values, what you like to do, i.e. if you woke up on a Monday morning and uh, you had 110 million bucks in your bank account, what, what would you do? What you're good at and what you can contribute. So those four areas, I would, I would define that as, as true purpose, not making a hundred million bucks. So then you, when you do that internal inventory and the answer to those four questions is different for everybody. But once you know that, then making sure that your job is addressing that, those four facets of purpose, and your uh, volunteer life, and even your hobby life. And if all three of those places are, are allowing you to live out your purpose, um, you, you're going to feel good about your life, and, and probably for the next nine or uh, Nine decades. Well, okay. So because I don't want people to rewind, tell me the four questions again. The intersection the, of your values, what you like to do, what you're good at, and where you can share them. Okay. That's great. Uh, and and again, those could be uh, – obviously, those are, are goals or, or – they're more like themes as opposed to what is the purpose of the day? What is the, th- what is the theme that I'm excited about? And because they all sort of mesh together as, yeah. a, as opposed to having a specific goal of having 110 million within 20 years. I would call it the four pillars of purpose. Yeah. Interesting. So, so in a lot of the blue zones that you looked at, uh, 
a lot of these people seem to know each other their entire lives. Like you showed one picture of a group of women who had known each other as a group for 97 years. And they're the average age in the group was 102 years old. And they were just hanging out, laughing with each other. That's another Okinawan construct, uh, a word they use, moai, M-O-A-I, moai. And it's really a committed social network. And they happen to last decades or lifetime in Okinawa. But it's an important point we see in all five blue zones where it's this curated you know, social circle, kind of, for lack of a better word, I would say it's your personal board of directors. So these aren't just, you know, drinking buddies or buddies you go to the game with or, you know, girls you sit around and talk about, uh, gossip about, you know, celebrities or something. These are people you can talk, you can call up on a bad day and they'll care. You can have a meaningful conversation with. And um, it's this is something that we see kind of, naturally occurs in blue zones part of the culture and it's so powerful on many on many levels but here in america if you want it you kind of have to make it you have to proactively build it but um it's um it's it's important you know if you're lonely in this country it shaves about uh eight years off your life expectancy I love how you quantify like every little thing to exactly how many years it, it either adds or subtracts from your life expectancy well, I, I work for National Geographic, and uh, the, the fact checkers occupy the corner offices there. So I'm, I've been trained to underpin everything I say with evidence. You know, living in America, uh, I find it's really hard. Like I didn't I, – I don't right now live with the quote-unquote tribe that I grew up with. And in fact, I find that the people I communicate most with are not – the healthy, mature people, because they're usually actively engaged in their own lives and families. And, you know, they, they people don't really work that way as, as groups anymore. You know, particularly for me, I'm 47 years old. Everybody's kind of busy with, you know, people who I consider good friends. I can call them four months from now and we're happy to talk to each other. But it's not like we hang, hang out as a group as often as we could. Yeah, I wouldn't tell you to dump your your old friends, but I would tell you, James, that it it might not be a bad idea to your maybe your New York and your Florida, where you do have a, a few good friends you can count on that have generally healthy behaviors. You know, we we're doing these um, citywide blue zone projects uh, in Fort Worth, Texas, and Los Angeles, and Iowa, and in every one of our cities, we actually help people. Lots of people build moais, uh, and you'd be shocked at how many lonely people are living in middle America. Uh, and when you spend a little time to help them uh, pair up or make these moais, their lives just turn around. And uh, I, w- I would have never guessed it, but it's become one of the most powerful facets of our program. Well, how, how big is like a moai? Is it two people? Is it five people? Five. Five is the ideal because you want intimacy. Uh, You want to be able to really, you know, if you're having a tough time with your spouse, you want to be able to talk to these people and uh, have them contribute in a meaningful way and and care. And um, I'd say five is ideal. It could go up to seven and uh, down to four. Hmm. Um, 
you know, a couple couple other questions based on a recent talk. You mentioned um, under the Eat Wisely, uh, and we talked a little bit about plants and, you know, the smaller plates, but you mentioned wine at five. Like, do you think a glass of wine is okay or better to have no alcohol? Well, you know, in the, the Blue Zone solution, the whole idea behind it was to do a meta-analysis of, of what people were eating in all these blue zones for the last hundred years and really come up with a, a uh, scientifically rigorous uh, set of guidelines. And indeed we do see that uh, four out of the five blue zones, people are drinking. Uh, they're drinking two glasses a day. One place we saw three, uh, but it's also interesting how people eat and drink. And I think that's almost more important. If you come home from work and slam two glasses of Cabernet, that's not all that good for you. It sends your blood sugar spiking and you'll get an insulin response. It's not good for the pancreas and not good for your chance of diabetes. But if you're drinking that glass of red wine slowly with a Mediterranean meal or blue zone meal, uh, you're actually going to triple the flavonoid absorption. In other words, you get three times more of the nutrients. Uh, if you're if you're drinking with friends slowly, your cortisol levels drop, so you're digesting better. Your this the inflammation that comes from stress is mitigated, and uh, so it's not just drinking two drinks. It's really how you drink it in the context in which you drink those two glasses. So you, you mentioned stress and, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, but you don't mention, I haven't seen you mention laughter and the importance of laughter in any of this. Is, is there a role for, for laughter? And, I, and I've seen some studies that suggest that laughter is good for various uh, chronic diseases like, like cancer, for instance. Nor, Norman Cousins has all these studies on this. Uh, what's your view on, on laughter as, as, you know, for helping us live longer? Well, it, it was hard to measure happiness, but I mean, or ha- measure laughter. But anecdotally, I can tell you in uh, in Okinawa, we I spent time with a club who every morning took a dose of what they called vitamin S, which was smile, and they would stand around and laugh. They just one guy would start laughing, and his laugh was so hilarious it would be infectious with the rest of the group, and then they'd laugh, and they kind of forced themselves to laugh and became happier because of it. And the people who tend to make it to 90 and 100 uh, tend to be likable people with a good sense of humor. Uh, They tell jokes. They'll listen and not just yammer. Uh, They are empathetic, sympathetic, tend to be generous. The grumps tend to die off. So there is something to laughter and, and the congenial environment in general. Well, I, I like that a lot because also it's related to uh, – and I'm, I'm going to start this. Like you mentioned the Seventh-day Adventists from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, they basically have a, a Sabbath similar to the Jewish Sabbath uh, where they just do not do any work and they relax. Uh, and that seems to be related to their longevity. So how would you describe what, – what are kind of the uh, – uh, sort of conditions of this Sabbath? Well, Friday night, it's dinner with the family. Saturday morning, it's their uh, religious gathering. Saturday lunch, they're meeting with their friends. Uh, 
um, they take their diet directly from the Bible. So they're eating plant-based, Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. And then on uh, Saturday afternoons, right there in their scriptures, prescribes a nature walk. And, you know, we talk about stress and how to, how to relieve stress. But here's a culture where everybody, every week, takes a one-hour, they call it a sanctuary in time, a one-day sanctuary in time, where they completely downshift and um, uh, focus on not the uh, where the kids need to be driven or the social schedule or what work is screaming at you to do, but they focus on bigger ideas and take the tension off of themselves and put it on their God. And I actually think it's a really powerful, powerful uh, tradition. And uh, it's, Adventists, by the way, live about 10 years longer than the average American. And so they're doing something right. What was interesting there is they're all ethnicities. So it kind of shows, it kind of takes out the genes factor. Genes is only about 20% of how long you live. The other 80% is your lifestyle and your environment. So, yeah, they're, it's a melting pot of people. Americans that live right off the San Bernardino Freeway under the same smog that everybody else lives under, but yet they're living a decade longer. So it's, I think it supremely uh, uh, proves the, the, the Blue Zones uh, prescriptive. Yeah, so, you know, one, one other thing I wanted to ask was a few, uh, a couple months ago, my wife and I decided to throw everything out. So not throw, in some cases we gave away, but basically we decided to, to, to instead of organizing our house, we got rid of all of our books, you know, because we have the Kindle. We got rid of all of our clothes except for a few outfits, uh, got rid of all the extra sheets, pillowcases, furniture, spices we never use, cleaned out everything. And so our house is like almost empty right now. And I found that to be a huge stress reliever. And I'm curious the effect of materialism or lack of materialism on these blue zones. Yeah, first of all, I think what you did is brilliant. But I can tell you in, in almost all blue zones, except perhaps the Adventists, they live in very austere houses with few possessions, uh, fewer things to worry about. They don't have huge portfolios or or, uh, or three cars to worry about or kids at the private school. A lot of the stuff we aspire to wrongly, um, they're not worried about it. So they're, they have a lot more time in the day uh, to think about their social connectivity, spending time in their gardens, um, uh, enjoying life. Do you think that's related to kind of almost a paleo lifestyle? So let's say... Homo sapiens, you know, started off uh, 300,000 years ago. For most of that, there was no sense of possessions because we were moving around a lot. You couldn't carry around. We were nomads. You couldn't carry around your possessions. Do you think, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, uh, it's only a small blip of the lifespan of or of the, the, the tenure of Homo sapiens that we've actually had possessions? So you think that's baked into our DNA somehow? I think as a rule, what, what early humans did uh, is a good thing to pay attention to. to I, I mean, for 99.9% for of 
human existence, as you point out, we were semi-nomadic. And by the way, the paleo diet um, is largely misguided. Most of human history, most of early humans and proto-humans were um, eating tubers and seeds and plants. Uh, it was only after we figured out how to make hand axes that we started breaking into skulls and bones for brains and marrow. And um, But hmm. the, the general idea, I think, of, of um, being free from strictures and, and stresses uh, is not a bad thing to try to emulate in our lives today. So, so you know, Dan, we've talked about a lot of the uh, – I think just listening to this podcast could uh, essentially help someone live to be – a hundred or more, but tell us, so your book's coming out, the blue zone solution, eating and living like the world's healthiest people. Tell me some of the things you talk about in the book, you know, without revealing too much that we don't talk about in this podcast. What, what, what else are people going to learn from the book? Cause I think this is going to be a valuable book to have. Thank you. So there's three essential parts. One is what were the longest of people really eating and the food guidelines. You could call it a blue zone diet. Uh, number two, realizing that um, diets don't last. So how do you set up your life so that eating the right foods becomes mindless? So there's a piece in there about how to set up your kitchen, uh, about how to set up your social life. We actually have a, a um, sort of a checklist that allows you to assess your friends to see if they're a net negative or a net positive. Again, I wouldn't tell you to dump your old friends, but I will tell you if they're all eating Doritos and burgers that you might want to augment your social network. But then most of my work these days, I, I'm a co-director on 23 cities uh, in creating their citywide Blue Zone public health templates. So how do you set up a city so that the whole place becomes 10 or 20 percent healthier, which is going to have a much bigger impact over time than trying to get people to change their behavior. So there's three chapters in there. And then because my wonderful publisher, National Geographic, uh, encouraged me, I put in the best recipes from all five blue zones. So how do you take these foods and make them taste good at home? And um, That's genius. Smart of yeah. National Geographic. <laughs> I fought like hell on that one not to have them, but they convinced me. I hate to say they were right. Well, why didn't you want to put it? Just because the – I mean, honestly, it's a lot of work to go around and get all these recipes, but why didn't you want to put it? James, how many books on your nightstand include recipes? Uh, well, for me, zero. Exactly. So my my fear was as soon as I, it, I wrote a serious book. It but, was for, but for my wife, my wife, more than one. I'm not, I haven't cooked in 20 years. So yeah. I was tr I wrote a serious book and I just thought recipes would cheapen it, but Geographic was kind of right in that. That's what a lot of people want to see. So I, I put a little bit of everything. It's story-driven science that ends with how you can put it to work in your life. Well, that's great. So Dan Butner, and I'm going to spell it so people can search for it correctly on Amazon, B-U-E-T-T-N-E-R, author of The Blue Zone Solution, Eating and Living Like the World's Healthiest People. April 7th is the publication date. It's coming out Kindle, hardcover, MP3. Uh, MP3 CD. Are you going to do an audiobook? Yes. Good. Already out. People, people listen to audiobooks. It always surprises me, but it's a it's a big uh, a big part of sales. Yeah. Now that we have iPods and 
and we're used to reading 140 characters. Yeah, exactly. So, well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I learned a lot. Today's a Friday, and I can tell you I've already talked about it with my wife, Claudia. We are taking tomorrow off, and it's going to be – and hopefully I can do it every Saturday, but we'll, we'll see if my kids let me. And, and by the way, way, you can tell Claudia that if you're over 45 and you're having sex at least twice a week <laughs> – once is likely to live to the next year than if you're not getting it at all. So that's very good information to know. <laughs> I will communicate that. On that note, <laughs> thanks very much, Dan, and I'll talk to you soon. Oh, James, what a joy! Excellent. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.